0: Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness. The priest and a rabbi explore Exodus Uh, today. As we explore Exodus three, we have two priests and a rabbi, so you are outnumbered
1: today, Daniel.
0: Feeling outnumbered? Yeah. (laughs) I am Carl Stevens. I'm
2: one of the priests. I'm Daniel Bogarda. I'm the rabbi. I am
1: Manero Zachariah. I'm a priest in this to Isis. Wonderful. Really nice to have you with us today. Oh, cool. Thank
2: you, Daniel and Carl. I, so, if we can for a moment, you actually were the genesis behind this whole rabbi
1: in residence idea. Uh, what were your goals with this? I'd love to hear a little bit. Oh, geez. Wow. Thanks for putting me on the spot there. Uh, my goals with this was actually um, to hear, um, off, well, from as much of an authentic. Source as we can in the interpretation of the Book of Exodus, because I think as Christians we sort of we we filter our, our reading of the Hebrew Scriptures through New Testament theology or theologies, and it's important that we we get back to the root and try to understand how how the book of Exodus has informed uh, rabbinic commentary, what the rabbis have to say, and what contemporary Jewish thought has to say about 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 the book of Exodus. And, and that's what kind of um, inspired this. Uh, not only that, I also spent time at the Shalom Hartman Institute, where I met Daniel for the first time in Jerusalem about two years ago. And I've always been fascinated with... Um, rabbinic commentary and i think um uh, you know an ongoing rabbinic commentary on the text just adds so much life uh for me and uh for the contemporary christian community
0: i have to say um Having done this now for three weeks, I uh, used some of the midrash that you will, that you offer to us, Daniel, with a Bible study a couple of weeks ago, and it was fascinating to me uh, that what there was a, there was a certain moment where a woman in the Bible study asked, um, "What are we to make of these stories?" Right, mm. and and I think one really profound difference between christianity and judaism is coming to the fore and that is at least in protestant christianity we have this idea of sola scriptura which means we rely on scripture alone it was a a deliberate attempt five years ago 500 years ago to pull away all the accretion of commentary and theology and thought and get back to uh just what was in the scripture And that, in some ways, that's still almost in our bloodstream. Like, we we continue to do that, and therefore to to ask Christians to consider Midrash is a surprisingly big ask uh, just because of that default understanding that we should just be looking at Scripture and not doing anything else.
2: You know, it's always interesting to me how— these ideas move back and forth, right? I think sometimes we have in our mind that Christianity comes out of Judaism. Uh, but really we've been in this cultural interchange uh, and exchange for so long because uh, for many American Jews, I think we've actually been influenced by this idea solo scriptura. Did I say that right? Uh, yeah. Although I'll check with Manoj to see if I'm actually <laughs> saying it right. No, I, I
1: think you guys are you're, you're spot on. Okay. I okay.
2: But it's really influenced in, in sort of uh, American Protestantism in general has really influenced American Jewry as well. Uh, and so for a lot of American Jews, they grow up uh, with the Bible stories, but know the Midrash and no Talmud a lot less than their ancestors 500 years ago might have. Um, so it's been an interesting uh, yeah And, and interesting I, think, influence. I think the
1: beauty of our reformed tradition in Christianity in terms of, uh, of, of being Anglicans and Episcopalians is that we've always held Scripture to be primary, but we've always read Scripture through the lens of tradition, and tradition meaning uh, what has been handed down throughout the generations, uh, paradosis in, in the whole um, sense of the word, and also have tried to to understand what scripture and tradition has to say in the context of our present reality. And that's where the whole notion of reason comes in. And Anglicans have been very mindful of taking scripture and, and trying to read scripture not only for what it has told us in the past, but what it is telling us in our future or in our present and future realities. It's very incarnational, if I, if I may use that word, um, for us. And I think that's, that's the beauty of, of even this very dialogue, because scripture is coming alive in, 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 in a very deep sense. Uh, well, with that, shall we jump into the text? That would be great. Now Moses, tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, drove the flock into the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay, so we've got this whole new setting for Moses,
2: uh, right? Like his life here. Uh, he has become really sort of a shepherd. Uh, do we have any sense of how much time has passed here? Uh I don't have a sense of that. I also have a question about
0: how old Moses is at this point. And this, again, was something somebody raised in Bible study. Um, is he 15? Is he 16? Uh, does he have a
2: beard? I, Daniel, is there any idea about that? Gosh, um, there must be an answer to that. I'm sure rabbis have answered that question, but I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. Um and I think
0: the question came up because in the, in the previous chapter, um, when he goes and kills the Egyptian slave driver, it seems like a kind of awakening to injustice that young people often experience. And the fact that he's not married yet, when I think the assumption was that people would get married much earlier, uh, in their life, um, that tended to, to lead us to think that maybe he was a very young man when all that happened. Um, so, we're to get to the the Charleston Heston beard moment, uh, quite a lot of time would have had to elapse, uh, and definitely enough time for for Ruell to change his name to Jethro
2: for for father in law <laughs> to switch names.
1: Gosh, but, um, I never
2: thought. Of that. Yeah, of course, this makes much more sense as Moses the teenager. Yeah. <laughs> no, I right? like even killing the Egyptian taskmaster and the sort of impulsiveness of it. There's a. Um, teenage quality here. I never thought of that, huh? There's actually a midrash, if we can uh, drop one in here, uh, that he's tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, what, what is the significance of him as a shepherd? Because shepherds keep coming back up, of course, uh, uh, with King David, uh, and, uh, it's used a lot in the Christian tradition too. Yes. Isn't that a phrase used for Jesus? Yes. He is a good shepherd. A good shepherd. Uh, though is he, ever, he never works at this as a summer job, does he, like Moses here? Uh, in the tradition, he is a carpenter. So no, he is only a metaphorical shepherd. Only a metaphorical shepherd. Uh, so Moses actually is a shepherd here. David, uh, of course, a shepherd. And so the Midrash connects this. It says that uh, uh, there's something about this profession that leads to kindness. Uh, they tell a story that uh, while Moses was uh, tending the flocks of Jethro in the wilderness, one of the little kids, the, the sheep, escaped from him. Uh, and he ran after it until it stopped in a pool of water. It starts drinking. Moses approaches it and says, I, I didn't know you ran away because you were so thirsty. And he picked him up and he carried this uh, <laughs> sheep uh, back to the flocks. Uh, and in this tradition, this is why Moses is picked to lead Israel that someone who cares about the smallest of creation is someone who should be in a leadership position. Um,
0: Well, and what's interesting about that is it brings us again to this question of God's providence. Um, I think many people, when they read this story, assume that a plan that God had from the beginning of creation is being enacted, and it was always going to be Moses. Um, But this Midrash seems to imply that it is, in fact, our actions that lead God uh,
2: to take action
0: in our own lives.
2: Yeah, that's certainly the rabbinic read. I mean, the rabbinic read is very, um, very focused on humans stepping into the picture and taking moral responsibility.
1: You know, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in what you just said, Daniel. Um, in terms of Moses' formation as a shepherd, I mean, we see this this person growing up. In the fort, uh, in in the court of Pharaoh, and then um, he, you know, happenstance happens. He becomes a shepherd while in exile, fleeing his, uh, fleeing the court of Pharaoh, and and sort of the moral foundations of becoming a shepherd is is quite interesting to me. How, how is there any commentary on how Moses cultivated? the the sense of uh, of care of moral responsibility, especially given given the fact that his 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 formation primarily was not was not necessarily in such an environment. I you know I'm going on a little bit of a
2: tangent here. Uh, I'm remembering a uh, um, a lesson I heard from a, a Holocaust scholar who was really interested in the question of what made the difference for people who stepped in during the Holocaust and sheltered uh, those who were being persecuted by the Nazis and those who didn't. Uh, And they looked at religiosity and they looked at uh, uh, income. They looked at all these other factors and couldn't find consistent narratives. Uh, And when they talked to him, the only consistent thing they found is that it wasn't thoughtful, that it wasn't the process of reasoning first, that the people who did it, when they were asked, why did you do it? Just couldn't conceive of a world where they wouldn't have done it. Uh, and so I don't know if that speaks to a Moses who just, that's how he interacted with the world. That when there was pain, he had to step in. Um, I don't know. What
1: What do you all make of this? In, in, in a part of Christian Deep Christian theology um, is that human beings are made in the image and the likeness of God. And I think this is a moment, especially in correlation with that rabbinic commentary, where Moses not only lives into, as, by virtue of being a human being, at the image of God, but the likeness of a God who is compassionate. And caring to all of creation,
0: what I kept thinking about was the fact uh, using that Holocaust story as a jumping out off point um, so many of the the people who did act also felt tremendously guilty afterwards that they hadn't done more, right so it 's almost as if they were keyed into a vision of how things should be that they were always going to fall short of, um, but because they believed in that vision so. Thoroughly, they were. They just didn't have to think about working towards it either. And I wonder. We we haven't seen Moses come into that vision except that uh, his killing of the slave driver seems to be a fairly unpremeditated act. So uh, one can assume that maybe as a, a hormonal fourteen-year-old, if we want to posit him that way. Uh, he wanted to act for justice. His mode of acting for justice was not great. And yet it was based upon this kind of impulsive dream of, uh, restoration
2: of, of justice. Huh? I really like that. I really like that. I'm going to chew on that, Carl. Um, and it fits with the whole narrative of Moses too. this sort of, aspirational idea that's never actually achieved by him. Right. Right. Because he never gets to enter into the promised land. Right. Um, huh. Okay. Shall we keep going as we've uh, accomplished all of half of a verse so far? Sure. Uh, Minoj, I believe you were reading. we didn't even talk about the fact though that, uh, so he's come to the mountain of God. Uh, so that quickly, he's no longer, uh, tending the flocks for us.
0: No. And he has actually gone into the wilderness, right? It says, at least in Alters translation, he drove the flock into the wilderness. So, um, this might, you know, in my English major kind of way, this feels like foreshadowing. What's he going to spend the rest of the book doing? Uh, he's going to be driving people and leading them through the wilderness, <laughs>
1: Okay, let's An keep going. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire out of a bush. He gazed, and there was a bush all aflame, yet the bush was not consumed.
2: Moses said, I must turn aside to look at this marvelous sight. Why doesn't the bush burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he answered, here I am. Okay, any thoughts on these verses?
0: Um, well, I think this would be a good point to turn to some midrash. Um, first of all, one of the midrash you offered to us today, Daniel, um, the bush is called a thorn bush, uh, and and there's much made of that. It's from Rashi again, um, so I'm wearing my uh, Rashi in concert T-shirt. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, I had never thought before, you know, in, in my translation and the other translations I've read, the kind of bush was never actually named. So I'm wondering, one, where does, where does Rashi get this from? Is that in the Hebrew that it is a thorn bush? Um, and second, I, I think we should pause and just consider what Rashi makes of that.
2: So I my, my knowledge of the varieties of bushes in ancient Hebrew is very low, uh, but I have always learned this as being a thorn bush. And there's all sorts of different explanations for this. Um, one of the assumed things about the thorn bush within much of Jewish commentary is that a thorn bush's thorns point inwards. So... You can shove your hand into a thorn bush. It's taking it out that is so difficult. Ah, cool. Uh, So so there's all sorts that's made of that, sort of the idea that Moses is entering into uh, a covenantal relationship uh, at this moment. Uh, But Rashi actually takes it metaphorically. Why in a thorn bush and not some other tree? In order to demonstrate that I am with them in their affliction. God is there in this uh, um, in this moment of dep- deprivation and slavery um, now the the other thing that's worth remembering I think is that it would not be an uncommon sight for a bush to catch fire in the wilderness huh so what's uncommon is that it's not being consumed by the fire exactly exactly you'd expect in fact a thorn bush to burn up rather quickly. it's going to be real dry
0: yeah. So what So what we're saying about Moses is he is looking closely, right? So he's seeing something that would be a common sight, and yet something about it causes him to look much more closely than he would ordinarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to just offer to you, because I think it's fun, uh, this strange Christian folk tale that I came across, uh, which has it that uh, the thorn bush is actually grown from uh, cutting from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, which um, uh, Adam's son cuts this. Adam's son cuts this branch off the tree of life, takes it out of Eden, and when Adam dies, plants it in Adam's skull. <laughs> and so the bush that Moses is encountering is this magical bush that has grown from the tree of life out of Adam's very body. Wow. I love that. I don't know what
1: to make of that, but I love that. I don't know
0: that. either. I, lo- I also, I just find it freaky Where, where and weird. in the
1: world did you find that?
0: <laughs> I'm going to look this up. I have this book called uh, Plant Lore Legends and Lyrics, which was, you know, one of these Oxford-y books from the 1920s, a kind of compendium of all these odd stories about plants. Oh, wow. And it's
2: in there. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well... So speaking of oddball stories, there's a Jewish midrash uh, for this verse four. When the Lord saw that God, uh, excuse me, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And this midrash says that actually God calls to Moses in the voice of his deceased father. Uh, I feel like we've entered into sort of a Hollywood moment here, right? Um, called out in his voice of his deceased father, Moses turns and says, Dad? And God says, no, this is not your father, this is the god of your father. Um, it's a very sort of spine. Which is here.
1: which is interesting textually because we have no account of Moses ever meeting um his siblings up to this point or his father? Um yeah. Huh.
0: Um, so here's a, a side question for you, Daniel. Um, as a Christian, I hear that. And, you know, we, of course, refer to God as father all the time.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. Is that unusual in Judaism? Uh, so what I would say is we have all sorts of references to God as father. Uh, the most famous actually coming from the high holy day liturgy. We have a, a prayer called Avinu new our father, our king, mm-hmm. uh, but interestingly, I'd say for most contemporary Jews, it's not a phrase that we use or feel comfortable with. And I think the reason is probably because it sounds too Christian to our ears. Yeah. So, Daniel, yeah. going
1: back to, to the comment, uh, the rabbinic, uh, the midrash that, that you offered uh, on this. So uh, it says, at that moment, Moses rejoicing, my father still lives. Said God, I am not your father, but the God of your father. So how much of this is about uh, distinct ethnic identity formation uh, apart from his, his inherited cultural identity? How much of this is truly about the, the formation of a new identity for Moses? So I am not your father, but the God of your father. Apart from his inherited uh, – well, his cultural – the cultural – his culturally inherited notions of deities. So how much of this is, you know, strikingly, hey, this is the identity you are going I, – I am revealing myself into? Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I like that question. I uh, So,
2: you know, I think the rabbis are definitely dealing with the question of a Moses – who exists in both worlds, right? This is a Moses who spent more of his life in an Egyptian context than he has in a Jewish context. And so this connecting him to the Jewish story, uh, the God of his father, I think is essential, but I think it's also connecting these two great stories of the Torah, uh, the story of Genesis, uh, the Jews is really a family in the story of Exodus. The Jews is a people, uh, right. Uh, because we really have these two moments of formation of relationship with the divine as Jews. We have Sinai and then we have the very personal relationship between, uh, Abraham and God. Uh, but I also think we're dealing with for the rabbis, uh, a question of identity formation of Jews living at the time that they're talking. Uh, who also are living in lands uh, with lots of non-Jews around them where Jews are often the minority uh, and identity formation with these Jews as having a relationship with the God of your father. So I, I think we're seeing this on all sorts of different levels.
0: Yeah. And I, uh, this also, I think, is a a little forecast of things to come because that question to me will become especially huge at the circumcision moment, that really weird story at mm. the end of what, at, at the end of the next chapter, right? Chapter four.
2: Okay. Shall we go on?
0: Yes. Uh, Carl, I think it's your turn to read. And God said, come no closer here. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place you are standing on
2: is holy ground. Now, none of our traditions do this anymore, right? We don't – none of you take off your shoes for holy moments? Uh, no. Anglicans um, do.
1: Uh, and Western Christians tend not to. But if uh, you yeah. are an Eastern Christian, the tradition is to remove your shoes before you enter um, the sanctuary.
2: Huh. I like that. Huh. Yet the only time the Jews do this is uh, – during sort of the the highest of holidays, uh, those who descend from the priestly class uh, stand up front and give a priestly blessing the the uh, uh, priestly benediction, uh, and they take off their shoes for that
0: and God said, "I am the God of your Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God, and the Lord said, "I indeed have seen the abuse of my people that is in Egypt." and its outcry because of its taskmasters, I have heard, for I know its pain, and I have come down to rescue it from the hand of Egypt and to bring it up from that land to a goodly and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Parasite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now, look, the outcry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppress them. So we've really got the whole story here. So, Daniel, there is a, a, a scholarly question at the moment, in some, at least in some of the scholarship I've been reading. And the question is this, like, how much are the Hebrews one people before the Exodus? And how much are they just a bunch of strangers living in Egypt who then become one people during the course of the Exodus, mm-hmm. and this particular passage is used in that question because part of the question is whether there are really three groups: one that is uh, the son of sons of Abraham, one is the sons of Jacob, one is uh, um, uh, the sons of Isaac. So you know. So the the question is is the Genesis story knitting together the three traditions to make it look like they're all the same, or were there the three separate t- tribes, Abrahamites the Jacobites and the Isaacites who become one people in the wilderness?
2: Yeah. And you can, uh, you know, m- much of the Jewish conversation that sounds similar, uh, looks at the tribes, uh, these, uh, the, the, uh, 12 children that we have or the 12 tribes at the end of, uh, uh, the book of Genesis and looks at those perhaps in the, the same kind of light. Is this a binding together of different traditions through the experience of Egypt? Um, you know, I don't know what to make of that other than to say, we know that oppression is a powerful force for creating identity. Yeah. Um, a terrible force, but a powerful force for creating identity. Uh, you know, it's interesting because that's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, sort of Jewish anxiety about declining Jewish affiliation rates in the United States. And it's really the great challenge of how do we live in a society where we're not facing oppression? Uh, how does identity and unique identity survive in that society? going to say, but, you know, we see this in terms of the formation of uh, Palestinian identity. Uh, We see this in the formation of uh, African-American identity in the United States, uh, right? I mean, if you think about the slave trade, it involved human beings from all sorts of very different cultures and different places who come to the United States and this new identity, terrible identity in that sense is formed through this experience of slavery.
0: Right. And so this story is there's a question. Is this a story about a group that is already cohesive going through something together? Or is this a story about trauma and struggle creating cohesiveness out of separate groups?
1: I'm just, I think recollecting um, some insight from, from Gottwald um, 20 years ago in seminary that I read talking about this identity formation here of a group of people who have regardless of ethnic ba- background have faced slavery and oppression in Israel so it was more of a class and economic based gathering together and this god of abraham isaac and jacob it symbolizes a god that collectivizes those who have faced uh, oppression and economic injustice within um, this empire and it is a gathering up of that collective together is is something that I'm – I think I'm recollecting from from Norman K. Gottwald about 20 years ago.
0: Well, let's keep that question on the table as we continue through the Exodus narrative uh, and the reason I've, I feel strongly about it is if this – scripture speaks to our particular time, I think it's important to, to realize that what we claim as a cohesive identity might not be all that cohesive um, and uh, what the new identity we're seeking might be formed, not just among people who look like us or act like us, but might come from all these diverse groups forming mm. together in some way.
2: Hmm. That's powerful. That's powerful. Okay. Shall we continue? Uh, Come, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you shall free my people, the Israelites, from Egypt. Uh, So we've got a claim of particularism. uh, A a particular relationship with uh, a particular people at a particular moment. Um. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? So let's ask that question. Who is Moses that he should be the one here? Why Moses?
0: Yeah, here's, uh, Manoj, here's your question of identity laid out, right?
1: Well, I I think Moses is the classic uh, insider and the classic outsider. Um, Moses, uh, if if we are to take this, the, the, the preceding two chapters um, very seriously is someone who knew the intricacies of the court of Pharaoh and had access to that court in, in many interesting ways. Yet simultaneously he understands the plight of a people who um, are enslaved and um, being in exile and having his identity continuously formed through that interesting experience of being in the wilderness or taking care of sheep um, forms him um, as an outsider yet the an outsider who has the credibility of knowing what goes on inside the court of Pharaoh so what what can we make of that for
2: sort of what we look for in leadership today right are there lessons here we can take from that
1: well I, I think one one very interesting interesting point of leadership um is that change needs to whenever whenever we talk about change it's it's easy to see change as an entirely outside force but if you don't know what what's happening on the inside you can't really sow the seeds of change in an institution and i'm i may be reflecting on our national climate and um Things as well. Uh, it's great that we we want uh, newness, but without understanding an inherited system, whether or not uh, newness can speak to an inherited system, uh, carte blanche is cer- certainly questionable.
0: I, I'm just thinking. I was at a community meeting yesterday about our neighborhood and how to make it. Uh, more racially diverse. And, uh, you know, one thing that some of us really came to was we have to collect data. Like, we have to know what the factors are that are preventing the thing that we want from happening. Um, We can't just go blindly in and be like... Oh, you you know, we must be more diverse and we must all, you know, somehow change our inward spirit so that we're more accepting and loving. It's like, no, are are there forms of policing or there things that are going on in the schools? Are there other things that are that are tamping down the potential for di- diversity in this neighborhood? And I think that speaks to what you just said, Manoj, right? Like you you have to know you have to have some
2: understanding of the actual reality if you want any change And sustainable, absolutely. You know, I'm also thinking, Manoj, just something you you pointed out here, that Moses is someone who's living really on the the boundary of these two groups, right on on the border between them, uh, between the Jews and the Egyptians. And I wonder if there's something to the idea that you have to be at that boundary if you're really going to make meaningful change. Um, And I wonder if there's something... I'm just thinking about this within my own life, right? I wonder if there's a lesson here that the place that we should work for meaningful change or wherever we're sitting at those boundaries. Well,
0: hmm. let's go on because I think what follows next will lead us to a nice midrash um, that will help answer that question of what makes Moses so special. Okay, let's go. You want to read? Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring out the Israelites from Egypt? And God said, For I will be with you, and this is a sign that I myself have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Look, when I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? let's uh let's stop there because the name of god will become really interesting too but um one of the midrash you showed us um from mayana shel torah
2: am i getting that right daniel mayana shel torah yeah well done, mayana well done. Um, he's a uh hasidic rabbi who ends up dying in the holocaust wow okay um i believe maybe actually is deported
0: to Auschwitz. Wow, that, that makes us, in some ways, even more resonance because he says that God's answer is, this itself, your humility, is the reason why I have chosen you, Moses. Um, and so clearly, he's giving the answer that the thing that makes Moses special is that he's humble. And we've already seen with the, the midrash about the sheep, that also being compassionate uh, in this case, particularly to animals, is another reason why Moses is set apart. Uh, but now, now I know that about uh, Maya Nachotora dying in the Holocaust. It, it kind of brings the question of humility into a different light for me. Um, I, I I can see a kind of humility that is passivity, you know, that is like, who am I to to rage against uh, the storm? And I see can see a kind of humility that is still active that says, I know that I am not the best person or the most worthy person to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway.
2: Hmm. You know, I'm going back to the verse that he's jumping off of. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And the Mayan Torah says uh, this itself, your humility, the fact that you are questioning yourself is the reason why I've chosen you. Right. There seems to be this notion that it is, um, a healthy amount of self-critique and introspection and uh, a lack of hubris or, or at least a willing to question yourself and your worthiness uh, that seems to be the key to leadership but, here. But
1: my question is, uh, um, so is it a, a really a self-deprecating in terms of is he consistently questioning who he is is uh, and being very insecure about himself, or is it the type of humility? It's like, oh, I'm not able to do this, but with help, I can. And I and I and I understand what the answer is going forward. But I, th- I think I think I'm intrigued by Carl's question about humility because it's it's a question that I I have as well. Is humility about saying, oh, I'm not able to do anything, I am totally weak in the, in the face of this situation, I am uh, totally not oh. worthy, or is it, um, okay, um, a very healthy, reflective understanding of my possibilities as well as my limitations?
0: Well, I think both are probably true for leadership, right? <laughs> like you have to yeah so the self reflection is is really key um, but also part of a good leader 's humility is their understanding that they have to lead despite all of their failures. They need to be honest about their failures, um, but being prideful is to say my failures are such that I can never expose them to the public eye. Uh, I might know them. I don't want the people I lead to know them, <laughs> therefore, I will just do nothing. Uh, whereas it seems like the kind of leadership who Moses, or the kind of leader who Moses will become is the kind who says, oh no, I understand, I understand that if I engage in this activity, I'm going to face a lot of criticism and every one of my failures is going to be naked to public view. And I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm just going to live with that as
2: horrible as that can be from time to time it, you know backing up too uh, because of course the the rabbis are offering these as commentaries on Moses, but in reality uh there's this other level that they are also offering their opinion on what qualifies someone for leadership right they're they're talking about their moments as much as they're talking about Moses. And so we've actually got three different opinions, uh, here on why Moses was chosen or to say it differently, three different qualities that are offered for leadership. This, uh, this idea of humility here, uh, but we talked earlier about a midrash that offered, uh, that leadership requires a kindness to all living things, a sort of, uh, um, Extended empathy, uh, and Rashi actually uh, says that the reason that Moses was chosen uh, was as a uh, uh, shepherd. He was always honest in his business dealings. He went out of his way to make sure that he wasn't stealing. Uh, so we really have three different uh, ideas of leadership here. Though perhaps a, I,
1: I like the idea of having a leader who's all so three. So it's of these. about yeah. humility. It's about compassion and it's about accountability because I, I mean the, the whole Rashi, um, the point, right? Uh, you know, knowing how many sheep or not stealing sheep is about being accountable to the people, to a higher power or to the owner and to the sheep as well in terms of taking care of their well-being.
2: Okay. Uh well, we're, we're getting the big reveal of the divine name, which – so if I can give an introduction here. I think this is one of those scenes that is supposed to be funny. And I think we totally miss it because we think of this um, – right, we, we sort of put this uh, lens of scripture upon it and an expectation of holiness. And um, I, I think we are getting a little bit of comic relief here. That is awesome, but you have to explain it. Why? Why? Uh, yes. so let's, let's go ahead and read this, and I'll take it apart. And, you know, maybe it's not uh, laugh out loud funny. I'm just warning you here.
1: Moses said to God, when I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Okay, so
2: right. So Moses is saying, okay, I'm going to go to the Israelites to round them up for some collective organizing here. I'm going to say... A God of your fathers has sent me, and they're going to say, "Which God?" They have an expectation that a God has a name, right? There's an expectation here that God right. is something like right. a person. And God said to Moses, "Haye Ashar Hayah." Okay, so th- this is important here. Ehiya Asher Ehiya. I will be that which I will be. Sort of is is um, the classic translation, though you'll sometimes see this is, I am that I am, uh, though that starts sounding a little Popeye-esque, I think. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but the key here is that we've got this verb,
1: Ehiyah I will be. He, con- he continued, thus shall you say to the Israelites, Ehiyah sent me to you. Okay, so this is absurd. Moses is going to go to the
2: Israelites, he's going to say to them, uh, the God of your Father sent me. They're gonna say, "What's the God's name?" and uh, Moses is gonna respond, Ehia, i I will be has sent me to you right this isn't a name. this is a concept yeah um, it, it's a future verb uh, it's absurd as a name, and I think it's maybe a commentary on the idea that God should have a name
0: yeah. oh, ooh, that's good. okay, so it's purposefully ridiculous. Because the
1: author does not think God should have a name. At least that's my read here. And God said further to Moses, thus shall you speak to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. Thus you shall speak to the Israelites, the Lord. So if you're looking at your Bibles
2: at home, more than likely if it says Lord, it's all in caps here. Uh, so something to know about the Hebrew. Anytime you see Lord all in caps, it is the proper name of God, yod heh also called the Tetragrammaton. Um, it's Jewish tradition that you should never try to pronounce this name, the proper name of God. Uh, so in fact, Jews, when they're praying, when we encounter this name, instead of trying to pronounce it, uh, we say Adonai, which literally means my Lord. And that idea of saying this substitute word has been put into the English. There's no actual connection with the four-letter name of God here with the word Lord. Now, that's important because the actual word itself is related to ehia. It's the same sort of core verb. The, the name of God, yod heh uh, the Hebrew word anytime it says Lord in a Bible, is an impossible form of the word to be. It includes elements of was, it includes elements uh, of is, and it includes elements of will be. Uh, So sometimes in in Jewish uh, uh, prayer books, you'll see this as the eternal, uh, which captures it a little bit, but it's even broader than that. But so we've gotten a name if we return back to the text here, right? So first God says, I will be that which I will be. And then we get actually the name that is used for God throughout the Bible, which is a variation on that. Was, is, and will be. Uh-huh. Right? This is not a real name. Right. We haven't been given a real name here. Moses asks for one, and he's given an impossible verb. Okay.
0: He's being Did told that make sense? Since, yeah, he's being told, uh, I won't tell you my name,
2: right? Or, or names are maybe not that important. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Or it's absurd to think that I could have a name,
1: right? I am that which was, is, and will be. So this radical transcendence, um, where you really can't, with your finite uh, mind, comprehend or even or even begin to fathom what I I am, because I am. I was and I will be what I will be or who I will be. In that sense,
2: we're not being given a name for God. The closest we get to a name for God is the next part of that verse. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The closest we're getting to a real name is a description of the relationship that this God has had with us. Um, Not an actual symbol for something that can't hold a symbol.
0: I want to make much... Out of the fact that it's a verb to be, um, you know, one part of me probably uh, influenced by modern psychology and also modern spirituality wants to say that this is God calling us into the ground of our own being. Um, I don't know if the text actually supports that here or not, but uh, I lift it as something that we can look at further. It it goes to that question of identity that Manoj was asking earlier. You know, are we dealing here with the story of people as individuals and as a people coming into an identity, which, you know, one might associate with coming into a sense of their own
2: beingness? I, uh, you know, this is certainly my understanding of the divine. Uh, My sense of God, and I'm very influenced by a a Jewish philosopher known as Maimonides or Rambam. But this idea that we share no qualities with God. God is that which is inherently other and we cannot relate to. Uh, That there is nothing human about God. And so the the idea that... um, God loves or God hates or God is mighty or any of these sort of other uh, um, adjectives that we apply to God, uh, that what we're really doing is creating God in our image uh, rather than being created in God's image. And so, yeah, certainly that that sort of transcendence uh, is my sense of the divine. Now, there absolutely are Jews who uh, have a more immediate and personal sense of God, uh, it's one of the interesting things about Judaism. We don't really have theology that you have to believe.
1: And, and my mom yeah. wrote in Arabic primarily and uh, yeah. was very much influenced by Islam and and uh, mm-hmm. classical Greek philosophy, yeah. Yeah. basically Aristotle, if, if yeah. I recall uh,
2: correctly. Yeah, in fact, I have a, a dear friend who's an imam who we bonded because he had read Uh, Rambam in the original Arabic, and I don't know a single Jew who has. Uh, Okay, shall we continue? This shall be my name forever. This, my appellation for all eternity. Now we're at 16. Uh, Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have taken note of you and what is being done to you in Egypt. And I have declared, I will take you out of the misery of Egypt, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to you. Then you shall go with the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, Adonai, the God of the Hebrews, manifested God's self to us. Now, for, now therefore, let us go a distance of three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to Adonai, our God. Okay. Thoughts here.
0: Yeah. Um, isn't this a point where the lines of battle are drawn? Because what we're going to get following this is a kind of uh, divine battle between uh, the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and Pharaoh,
2: who also thinks he's a God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, n- now, it... I don't know about you all. This takes a turn in a different direction than I would have imagined, right? We, we get this sort of arousing speech to Moses, and I'm imagining all of a sudden the scene will cut to Egypt and him uh, uh, in their challenging pharaoh in the court, and instead, they go to the wilderness to sacrifice.
0: Okay, so let's move on. Uh, Manoj, do you want to take us to the end?
1: Sure. Um, verse 19, right? Sure. Yet I know that the king of Egypt will let you go only because of a greater might. So I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with various wonders, and I will work upon them. After that, he shall let you go. And I will dispose the Egyptians favorably towards this people, so that when you go, you will not go away empty-handed." Each woman shall borrow from her neighbor and the lodger in her house objects of silver and gold and clothing, and you shall put these on your sons and daughters, okay, so thus right. stripping. What do you all make of this final verse? <gasps> My friend
0: Paula Jackson down in Cincinnati used this as a way of talking about reparations, right? She, she said, here we have a, a clear call to
2: reparations built right into scripture. That's certainly what I see here. Yeah. Um it, you know, it's interesting there was a uh case, it must be twenty years ago now, where an Egyptian man tried to sue the state of Israel into international courts for Egyptian wealth to be returned plus interest. Wow. Um I mean obviously sort of an absurdo lawsuit. Um but what what are the ethics of this? Is it okay what they did? Is this theft? I don't know. I mean, it becomes so fundamentally important
0: later on because our, this does happen. They do get the gold, so to speak. And isn't it the gold that it becomes a tabernacle? Is, but first it becomes the golden calf. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah, this is what they carry with them,
2: right? These are the goods that uh, are the resources in the wilderness.
0: Yeah. So when we get to that golden calf story, that feels like a question we should really ask. I mean, is that story saying uh, it it matters more what you do with the reparations you get than whether you get them or not? Or I don't Interesting. know. Maybe, maybe I'm overthinking.
1: Well, well, and it also talks about, <clears throat> I mean, if we we're going to extrapolate and apply it to today, uh, how our modern... American society is built, and um, certainly the question of reparations. And thank you, uh, Daniel, for the article uh, from the Atlantic. Um, uh, yeah, the case Coates, for reparations
2: uh, in the Atlantic. You can find it by googling the case for reparations, but really a, a right. powerful argument, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, so it, it does. It does make me think because <clears throat> whether it be. Um, in India, I'm an, I'm an ethnic Indian, um, where, um, there was an extrapolation of labor, uh, to build an empire, or build various empires, or whether it be in the United States, where, where our country <clears throat> has truly benefited from, um, the subjugation and oppression of many people. And what are what are the implications of this ver- verse in this contemporary time, or in examining our history, is a very deep and moral question. That did un- that Britain
2: ever pay reparations to India? Never. Huh. Um, because quite controversially, Germany ends up paying reparations to Israel. Um, with huge protests in Israel at the time, huge, huge protests against accepting any sort of reparations. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I think that gets- yeah, the argument was it's buying off the historical guilt, right?
0: And maybe that in part is why it's stolen here. <laughs> so there are two two ways we can think about um, them them borrowing this gold and then leaving with it. One is it could just be savvy in saying, "Look, it's very rare that people are willing to admit their guilt and pay reparations, so if there are going to be reparations, they're going to have to come about some other way. okay, that may be really true right and you can and you can see the justice there. you can say, Well, it might seem somewhat dishonest, but it's also just um, The other way of thinking about it comes to that you know does Israel accept the the reparations maybe the the Hebrews steal the gold for the for because of exactly those same concerns. Like, what do you mean? You you think you can buy uh, a clean conscience from us by giving us this gold? No, we'll just take it, and you'll just have to stay with your dirty conscience,
2: right? Though so there there is this final line here, thus stripping the Egyptians, because there's some level at which this is. I think you can make a claim that it is just, that the Israelites are due these wages. Yeah. But the thus stripping the Egyptians, there's vengeance there.
1: It's, yeah. There's vengeance. There's
2: violence. Maybe it's, um, Maybe it's deserve it. Maybe, right, um, that's an open question. But it's definitely vengeance. Yeah.
0: Um. It's stripping the Egyptians in a way, the same way that their power has been stripped and their faith in their, their own religion, their Pharaoh's ability to defeat this other religion has been stripped away. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's also metaphorical in a pretty profound way, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: which raises the question, like, can, can any of this happen without violence? Does it ever happen without violence? Does the world ever change without violence? And I have no good answer to that question.
1: Manoj, you know, any final thoughts? I, I am full of, of ponderings and, and questions and, and, and all that, that I, that's going to live with me throughout this week as I reflect on this. so I mean n- nothing that I can I can express right now. Well, thank you for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. Totally. Oh, awesome. Uh, this is fun. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Daniel.
2: So Lost in the Wilderness, a priest
0: and a rabbi explore Exodus, or in this case two priests and a rabbi, uh, is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral and also by the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness (laughs) is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, You can find me at prayerbook.com art.com daniel where can we
2: find you online i you know i guess i'll just give another pitch to make sure to like uh, dso big read on facebook awesome and minoj do you have a blog or someplace
0: people can follow you
1: uh i don't but i you know cincinnati cathedral.com
0: there we go thank you so much for listening and um We will uh, be putting up another podcast pretty close after this one uh, because we missed last week because I was traveling. So look for another podcast coming into your feed later this
2: week.